from the National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. The Maui fire devastation and a spared Catholic church, a court ruling reinstating limits on abortion pills, Ohio pro-lifers gear up for an aggressive abortion ballot measure in November, and churches destroyed by a mob in Pakistan are some of the stories we cover on Register Radio this week when Matthew Bunsen and I talk about the latest news in an editor's corner. Then EWTN news legal analyst Andrea Pachati bayer gives us an update on a few religious liberty cases making their way through state courts. I'm Jeanette Mello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. And of course, I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News' Vice President and Editorial Director. Welcome back, Matthew. You've been on the road. I was. I uh, had the privilege of uh, spending some time in Portugal, in Lisbon, for World Youth Day. Uh, but very happy to be back and back with you. And taking a little bit of time off, too, to explore that beautiful uh, country. A <laughs> couple of days. <laughs> That's good. Well, Matthew, there's quite a bit of news to talk about this week, as I yeah. kind of ran through in the intro there. But um, perhaps one that hit home for you in a in a kind of nostalgic way is the fire in Maui. You grew up in Hawaii. What I did. a tragedy! Uh, well, this, uh, the fire in Lahaina on the island of Maui uh, is devastating on a, a host of different uh, dimensions. Uh, obviously, there's the horrendous loss of life. Uh, I think as of today or, or so, we're looking at well over a hundred. Uh, have been killed. Uh, we're still looking for about a thousand more who are, right. are missing. And now the questions are, are being asked about what caused it. Uh, was there enough done to keep everyone safe? Could this have been prevented? Things like that. Uh, but it's also the devastation of the heritage because Lahaina is one of those uh, great venerable places in Hawaii where tourists came, may have come from all over the world to sit uh, <laughs> on the beauty of uh, the Pacific. But this is also an important place uh, culturally for the Hawaiian people. And so that the losses, I think, are just continuing to mount. Um, obviously, that the loss of life is what everyone is focused on. Of course. Uh, and, and what we can do to care for the survivors and find those who are missing. But then there is the emotional trauma, the spiritual trauma. And I think that's where the, the Catholic Church in Hawaii has been playing a very important role over these last days. Right, and I think that's that's really in, it's interesting you left off on that because you know one of the stories we've been able to cover is this Catholic Church that appears to have survived the devastation. <laughs> that's uh, I right. mean, they they still have to make sure everything is sound, but but it really does seem to have survived, and this is. Uh, Maria Lanaquila, you probably say that much better than me, but uh, Maria Lanaquila, uh, Catholic Church in Lahaina, um, is is standing. And uh, as far as we know, we, we've heard from Honolulu Bishop Larry Silva, who visited the town earlier this week. He, he was able to have Mass last Sunday for about 200 Catholics, and he was able to talk to the pastor of this church of this parish and apparently the church and the rectory are still standing while the school and a convent did burn and the, the mm -hmm. rest of the neighborhood around it burned it's, it it seems miraculous i mean it, it it's <laughs> yes. it seems to be spared 
Well, when we look at uh, fires like this, the speed of these wildfires, uh, it's probably not a huge shock that uh, random buildings manage right. to survive. That's true. But this is uh, a particularly interesting situation because uh, of the heritage of uh, the, the, the church here, Maria Lanaquila. Uh, the name, of course, is uh, from Hawaiian for Our Lady of Victory, which seems oddly appropriate here. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is, uh, I was mentioning about legacy, and the parish was founded all the way back in 1846 by one of the members of the Sacred Hearts Congregation, Father Aubert Bouillon. Those are names that are hallowed in a lot of the missionary work that was done in Hawaii. And then we've got uh, the stone church itself was finished in 1873, and then additional renovations. So this is a, a church with a great heritage. Right. And it has become, I think, something of a symbol. And, and I know Bishop Silva has talked about that, of the miraculous, seemingly miraculous way that uh, the church was spared, as well as the rectory. But uh, he said, we, you know, we thank God for blessings, uh, that there was only covering of ash, he said, on the pews. But in a way, this has become uh, an important moment uh, because people see this church and they know that the Catholic Church is present there. You know, one of the things that um, Bishop Silva said that, that really caught my attention was they were trying uh, to get Catholic school children back into school because the yeah. school was destroyed there. So they're looking at uh, hotels in the area in a conference center, hoping uh, to get the children back into school to pr help provide some stability for those families who are now, you know, trying to rebuild their lives. So I, I just thought uh, we're going to follow that. We're going to try to follow that story at the register and Catholic News Agency. Catholic News Agency has really been leading our coverage of this. And so that's something to look forward to you know, is, is us trying mm -hmm. to tell that story. But if, you know, listeners can go um, and donate to help um, Catholic charities or the diocese in their rebuilding, um, and that uh, kind of information can be found at ncregister.com. There's a story, Honolulu Bishop Details Shocking Devastation on Maui. So if you search that, you can find information within that story. It's another link out but, you know, it's, it's something that we can do to help, aside yeah, from that's our right. prayers. And, and stories like this, uh, the news cycle moves on very quickly, and people tend to forget. Uh, right. Hawaii's a very long way from the mainland, and uh, it's a story that uh, we don't want to forget, in part because of the enormity of the, the suffering that we've been talking about, but also... This is an opportunity to reflect a little bit on the history of the church in Hawaii and uh, the work of Catholics there. Right, exactly. So you're listening to Register Radio. This is Jeanette DeMello and Matthew Bunsen having an editor's corner. We've been talking about Maui, but we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about a court ruling that came down um, this week on a matter that, that we follow closely at EWTN News, um, especially since the Dobbs ruling. And this is um, about abortion pill access. So a federal court has ruled that limits, previous limits on abortion pill access can be reinstated and should be reinstated. So Matthew, what, what was decided and, and where might this go? Yeah, this is uh, one of those very complex cases, and it's a perfect example of uh, how media uh, tends to look at a story like this. Uh, we have a federal appeals court that essentially said it would limit access to the abortion pill mifepristone. It, it ruled significantly that the, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, had really overstepped its authority. Uh, with a series of actions that to do what? To follow the Biden administration's, and this also dates back all the way to the Obama administration, to expand as far as possible 
the use of this medication uh, that is an abortion-inducing drug. And it waived part of a lawsuit that had been filed, uh, essentially the challenging the underlying approval of the drug. But uh, it does bar, uh, it was barred by the statute of limitations, but it does also allow the FDA's approval of the generic version of the drug to stand. That's significant because when we go back to 2020, and, and, and we're looking also at 2000, all the way back to the year 2000, what were some of the mitigation strategies for this type of a medication? Well, you had uh, the maximum that it could be taken was 49 days into a pregnancy. That was wiped away to 70. It uh, had to be at one point dispensed by a doctor. That was waived. It had to be, uh, was not to be dispensed by a pharmacist. That was uh, implemented by the Biden administration changes in just this last year, this year. Also, you had to have in-person administration, in-person dispensing. All of that has been uh, obliterated. And then even the idea of following up in person uh, to evaluate somebody who's taking this medication, that was done away with. And reporting on all non-fatal serious adverse events, that was set aside too. So what, in many ways what this uh, Fifth Circuit Court decision has done is to really begin shining some light on serious questions that have been raised about the FDA's underlying approval of the drug. Uh, there are protestations that this was as safe, they said, as taking Tylenol. Well, I think there's very mounting amounts of evidence uh, that that is simply not the case. Absolutely. And I, I mean, we should point out that the, the court case that kind of brought about this ruling uh, is from doctors. I mean, they were challenging um, the FDA. It's the Alliance of Hipp Hippocratic Medicine. Uh, so a group of medical professionals who were saying, wait a minute, not so fast. Um, and so, you know, some of the things um, that have are now on pause, right, or, or limited, uh, is that there are no, there, it's ended, this ruling has ended mail order abortions, right. um, which is important. Uh, and I, I believe I read it, it's now required, um, you know, three, three doctors um, to be involved in, or three different visits um, in order to, to, you know, to be able to be prescribed uh, this uh, pill. And so all of this is done um, really for the health of the woman. Uh, that's right. And that's very important to point out here. Well, I was mentioning that when we go back to 2000, these initial approvals, at the very least, there were things in place there. Uh, and the term is uh, risk evaluation and mitigation strategies for these types of medications. And the fact that they are so eager to do away with any of the reporting and any of the follow-up and, and so many of the, the safety protocols that you need to have, it's especially important, as you noted, Jeanette, because this does block a move to allow the drugs to be dispensed through the mail. And medication abortions account for about, what, now half of all U.S. abortions and various government agencies and outside experts, they keep protesting and saying that this is as safe as Tylenol, but those numbers just aren't there. And it's even less trackable, and you can have even less care and risk evaluation mitigation when things are ordered through the mail. Right. 
You know, I, I, w- I wouldn't normally bring this up, but I think it's super relevant. Um, as someone who's had miscarriages and have to, has had to have medicated uh, miscarriage uh, management, I, I know how important it is to have those follow-ups. And so, y- you know, this is, this is something to follow. <laughs> um, our audience really needs to understand um, this case well and, and the situation here because it's getting misrepresented, as you, as you pointed out at the beginning of, of this conversation on this. So... Yeah, one has a sense that uh, what they're trying to do here is simply to expand as far as possible handing out this medication and then just turning patients loose without any follow-up or or additional care. And and I think your experience is a very important one. Yeah, it's serious. So maybe another conversation we'll have on that one. But I do want to point out a couple of other um, uh, uh, stories that we have or or opinion pieces that we have at ncregister.com. We've been talking about, you know, the abortion pill, but there was also... Uh, an abortion um, uh, related, I guess, uh, not indirectly related um, to abortion, this uh, ballot measure in Ohio, which failed um, last week, and and that was the Ohio issue one. Well, Michael Warsaw, in his publisher's note, wrote about this, but really broadened it out. His piece is called on abortion, how do we get to unthinkable? And he writes about the failure of Ohio issue one, which attempted to raise the vote tally needed to pass a state constitutional amendment from 50% to 60%. And he writes about how this will affect pro-life efforts in that state. And really, the way it will affect it is that it is firing up those pro-li- that pro-life community in Ohio to fight hard against a very expansive abortion uh, ballot measure that they'll be voting on in November. Uh, so this is worth the read. His whole point is it's not so much about uh, the legislation or policy, which is super important, but it's also about how do we make uh, abortion unthinkable again in, in our society and in our, our culture. So well worth the read. On abortion, how do we get to unthinkable at ncregister.com by Michael Warsaw. Matthew, there's another subject, not abortion related. Uh, we cover that a lot, but this one's in Pakistan. Um, thousands of Muslims, a mob basically of Muslims, burned churches and Christian homes after two Christians uh, were accused of defacing the Koran. What right. happened? Well, this is uh, one of many stories that we're hearing on a, on a far more regular basis now. We, we see it in Pakistan. We have seen similar attacks in India, uh, in this case, in regions that are dominated politically and, and culturally by the Hindu nationalists. But in this particular case in Pakistan, um, Muslim mobs uh, attacked various Christian communities in one of the uh, Faisalabad district uh, in Pakistan. All that was required for this rage was a two a- Christians were accused, as you noted, of supposedly defiling or desecrating the Quran. The result was that uh, at least 15 buildings have been uh, burned or desecrated or uh, attacked. Hundreds of Christian homes have been destroyed. And as is often the case, literally thousands of Christians have been displaced, literally forced to flee for their lives uh, because of the attacks. Now, we know that the Pakistan government did respond by arresting mm-hmm. well over 129, 130 uh, Muslims for these attacks. The question, well, the two big questions, A, is there any provision in Pakistan's laws about blasphemy for desecrating things like the Bible or Christian churches, which right. I think we already know the answer to that. But the other is, uh, what real justice is there going to be for 
Uh, those Christian families have had their lives destroyed and in some cases suffered serious injuries and even death uh, at the hands of these mobs. And uh, are these two Christians uh, who are accused of defiling the Quran, when they're found, are they actually going to be arrested? That's important, too, because they have been expanding the sentences for accusations of blasphemy for those who are convicted of it. Uh, you can now receive perhaps up to life in prison uh, for the simple accusations. Uh, so it's a, an increasingly difficult situation, and we were talking about keeping the focus on uh, the fires in Hawaii and the recovery there. Stories like this uh, are something that we also need to keep a very close eye on uh, and to keep pressure uh, from a journalistic standpoint on right. institutions like the U.S. State Department, asking them what is the United States' policy on all of this. Absolutely, and that's something CNA and the Register are really trying to do, uh, increase our, our resources um, to, to focus on places like Pakistan where stuff like this is happening. I'll tell you one more story. I'm not going to get it, have time to get into it, but the Register has an editorial out there. The Federal Bureau of Intimidation, <laughs> that's the title, a Great jazzy title, title right? <laughs> um, and this is about the FBI focusing, um, uh, targeting, I would say, some traditionalist Catholic communities. It's worth the read at ncregister.com. When we come back, we'll be talking to Andrea Pachati Bayer about religious liberty cases that matter. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. If you need your news on the go, read the Register online. But if you want to take your time and savor the stories, then subscribe to the National Catholic Register's print edition. And with award-winning Catholic journalism that goes beyond what you'll find from any secular news service, you'll get the real story behind the events that unfold over the course of the year. Try the Register for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Join the Catholics who depend on the Register for its faithful and courageous reporting. Get six issues free today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. And many of you know we love the beat of religious freedom at the National Catholic Register. It's something we are committed to following as, as often as we can, as often as we need to um, bring this kind of information to our listeners and to our readers. And I think I could say our favorite freedom fighter is Andrea Pachati Bayer, a legal analyst for EWTN News and the director of the Conscience Project. Uh, she joins us now. Welcome back to Register Radio, Andrea. Oh, thanks, Jeanette, for having me on. I love being with you guys. Yeah. So, and I know you are as committed as we are to following this important topic, and there have been a few cases lately that have caught my interest, and one of them you uh, just wrote about for the Register in a column. 
This one is titled Religious Families Denied Equal Access in California's Special Ed Policy. And there's a court case um, happening, going a case that's going on now with, um, as I understand it, three Orthodox Jewish families in California who sued the state of California over a law they say discriminates against religious families with disabled children. And so they're appealing the judge's dismissal of that case. But what's the story? What's the background here? What is this case all about? You know, Jeanette, thanks thanks for giving me the chance to talk about this. I think it's a really important case, and it deals with the state of California's implementation of a federal law that's called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA for short, or the IDEA. And, and it really has been a game changer for children with special education needs and being able to access the supports and services they need on equal terms as their non-disabled peers. Um, and what happens in California is they've come up with a rule to basically put an exception to the general provision of services when a public school can't provide what a child needs. Um, the a family can be reimbursed for services rendered in a private school unless the school is sectarian or a religious school. And um, this is kind of a, a variation on a theme of limiting public funds from going to religious schools, in this case, in the context of special education services. I think it's a clear winner for the parents um, and will really be a great winner for kids and families with um, special education needs as well as religious schools that want to serve families um, and want to serve children, but can't do so without the support of these special education grants. It seems like a, a no-brainer. <laughs> As you said, you know, you feel like they have a really strong case. Um, but, of course, this is the state of California, so it seems they have a, an uphill battle. Um, the the uh, one line in your column, and it's something we chose as the subhead, uh, it, it was a great line. It says, in California, even the care of young people with disabilities takes second place to secularist dogma. And, I mean, that's a great line, and it, it seems to be true. What are these parents facing, and, and where, you know, how will this case work its way out? Well, as you mentioned before, there was a, a bit of a setback, um, but I don't think it's the end of the story for these families. Um, they filed a lawsuit in federal court um, claiming that this this sectarian exclusionary rule was a violation of the Constitution, and um, and the the district court judge and a Obama appointee ruled against them by dismissing their case, basically saying that there wasn't any kind of discrimination going on. This was just the way that the system was working in California. Um, their lawyers, Beckett Law, which is my favorite religious freedom fighters, um, <laughs> and it, your your listeners may remember they've represented groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor and Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia. They announced just yesterday that they're going to appeal the case to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where I think um, the the judges on the Court of Appeals will see that the law really recently has made clear that discriminating um, against schools because of their religious identity is unconstitutional. 
um, and and really does interfere with the free exercise rights of these families. Um, it again, I think it's going to be a, a, a win for the parents and a win for for their children and a win for the schools because the case also includes two Orthodox Jewish schools that want to be able to support um, Jewish students with special needs. Um, it just may take a little bit of time. Right. And I think you point out in your column that there are um, other other cases, other rulings that, that really support uh, what these families are claiming. Uh, there's one a case recently, a parental rights case in Maine, correct? Absolutely. And these cases were in the context of school choice programs, um, both in the state of Maine and also in, in uh, the term before in the state of Montana. But I think it's not that much of a leap to talk about the use of funding needs to be done fairly, um, whether it's a school choice program or the distribution of federal funds by a state. Um, what's really interesting is California is seems to have tons of money to fund all sorts of things like to become a, a sanctuary state for abortion, even for out-of-state um, women, and right. um, as well as for youth that want to seek um, transgender uh, medical interventions. Um, but when it comes to serving vulnerable students, vulnerable children that need special education services to flourish, that's where the purse strings are tightened. So right. hopefully um, it'd be great if California will resolve this problem and rectify this discrimination without judicial intervention but it looks like, given their stubbornness, it's going to take a decision from a reviewing court to get right. them to do the right thing. Right, and, and, and that's religious believers. The purse strings are tight for not just the disabled, but religious disabled students, right? So it's a, it's, this is just a really crazy, um, a crazy thing to think about when you actually review the facts of this case. But there's another case on the opposite coast that I wanted to talk about, um, where religious believers are the subject of another suit, uh, and, and really a discriminatory one as well. And I'm thinking about a Massachusetts couple that was seeking to adopt a child and went through, I think, eight-month-long process um, to be told in the end uh, that the, their religious beliefs about marriage, sexuality, what it means to be male and female, make them unsuitable to be adoptive parents in the state. What's going on here? You know, Jeanette, I think it's a continuation on some questions that were left unanswered by the Supreme Court um, just two terms ago in a case, like I mentioned before, involving Philadelphia's foster care um, placement program. In that context, it was a Catholic social services agency that had been operating for over 50 years, placing needy children in loving foster homes. And this, the city of Philadelphia wanted the agency to certify same-sex married married couples um, to be foster parents, and they said, you know, in accordance with Catholic teaching on the nature of marriage, we can't do so. The Supreme Court didn't address um, the, the specific issue of forcing people to go against their beliefs on marriage, in this case, you know, a ministry of the Catholic Church. The case in Massachusetts will look at that. Can you exclude people based on their sincerely held beliefs? There's also, I get the sense, that there's a lot of hostility against this loving family 
um, because of their beliefs. And, and we may find out that this is similar to a case that people may remember involving Jack Phillips, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado, where the government um, administrators were so hostile to his Christian beliefs that the Supreme Court said there was not any fairness um, in how he was treated. So I think it could go either way. Hopefully, again, the state of Massachusetts will resolve um, the issue without having to go through the court system. But um, it really seems at a time where we really should have all hands on deck to to respond to the needs of, of children that don't have the loving forever homes that they need, that the state of Massachusetts would put a, a discriminatory wrench in, in the system um, to exclude these parents from being able to open up their homes to needy kids. Right, and I'll mention the name of this um, this couple, Michael and Catherine Burke, uh, and this is a case out of Massachusetts. It's a brand new case. It's It was a lawsuit just filed um, earlier this week, so uh, I'm sure it has a long road ahead of it, but, but certainly something we will be following closely. Andrea, I'm always grateful for uh, the fact that you stay on top of all of these uh, kind of cases that touch upon religious freedom, that touch upon um, the integrity of the Constitution and, and our rights, and i um, so grateful for the work you do. Oh, thanks so much, Jeanette. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and I pray until next week that God bless you.